Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast episode. I think this is episode 53 now, but technically our one year anniversary podcast episode with your host, Austin Ye and Mayu. What's going on, everybody? We're going to do things a little bit different this time. Um, we're jumping right into a Q&A style podcast where we ask our guests and followers um, to drop any kind of questions that they might have into our DMs or, or the Rise Network Instagram page DMs. We're essentially just, we want to do something a little bit different to celebrate our one year anniversary with the podcast. It's been a great journey. Really appreciative of everyone that's engaged with us on social media. We really had no idea where this would go. We just kind of started off as a passion project and things are going well for the podcast, at least. All things rise as well, I guess, just to cover that. We do have a meetup on the 29th. It's going to be pretty informal, just a bunch of us just kind of meeting up at a park downtown. Um, Just make sure you register and for the event it is a free event like there's a donations link and the minimum donation was apparently one dollar we couldn't really do anything about it but we needed everyone to get a ticket just so that um we're going to disclose the location of what park where in downtown toronto probably the morning of worst case the night before just that um you know there's not too much attention or anything like that and and there's not too much like different news like circulating around right so make sure you guys get a ticket for the event and i think with that being said austin we've covered all of our administrative items you want to jump right into q a Let's uh, let's just shout out um, two milestones that we actually achieved. We we hit a hundred thousand downloads on our podcast, which is fitting because in one year we finally hit the six figure mark on uh, downloads. So hooray to us! Very proud of that achievement. And uh, also, we didn't hit a hundred reviews quite yet on Apple Podcasts, but I'm gonna chirp it in everyone's ear. If you do like this podcast, make sure to support it. Share it with a friend and make sure to also review it on any platform that you're listening to. Uh, but we're measuring Apple Podcasts. So let's get that to 100 by the end of the year. Um, we're at 89 right now. But without further ado, Mayu, let's jump into the first question and why don't you handle that? Cool. So the first question um, basically said, hey, guys, I love the podcast as always. Please keep them coming. Got a question for your Q&A. Assuming you're in the growth phase of your business and with all things considered, that's time, commitment, cash and equity returns. Would you prefer to have $1 million of your equity deployed in a small portfolio of multifamily or in a small apartment portfolio, which is defined as five to 25 units and why? Right. So I think the answer to this question is going to come down to what your goal is, right? Um, That's one side of it. The second side is there's huge pros and cons on both, right? So small multifamilies are two to four units. There's much greater supply of small multifamily. You can generally geographically restrict yourself a lot better. There's just more inventory that you can pick and choose from. Um, and these are quick and fast, easier projects, right? Like nothing is like super easy, I guess, but nothing super fast, but a normal multifamily project could be done within six months, right? The apartment space, five to 25 units, it decreases, like I'd almost like to break it down between five and 10 and 10 and 25, but the 10 and 25, the inventory of those type of apartment buildings is a lot less. It's, it doesn't mean that there's no deals out there. It just means that you got to put in more work to find those individual deals, right? Um, Apartment buildings, you can make serious wealth on just one transaction, right? Because you're playing, you're playing with NOI and cap rates and stuff like that. And this leads into my second point, where where you are in your journey is going to impact how you deploy that $1 million in cash, right? 
Because while you can make generational wealth on a small apartment building, if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't have experience estimating rentals, insurance costs, for example, like small like variables like utilities, stuff like that, even dealing with tenants, those kind of errors are going to be magnified if you jump into an apartment building, which is valued based on a cap rate, right? Because uh, apartment buildings are basically NOI divided by cap rate equals a valuation. So if you have a 100,000 NOI and a 5.5 five cap, I believe that works out to be a $5 million valuation. But if you get some of your numbers wrong and your net income is instead of 100K, actually 90K, well, guess what? That error is also magnified. I think like rough math off the top of my head, I think it's like a 200K impact on your valuation, right? So that being said, I think myself and Austin, we are tethering towards the five to 25 units. But I think if you're a new investor, you should like, we both started off with single families. We did the duplex, triplex, fourplex, and now we're doing the five to 10 units. Like neither one of us, and Austin, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think either one of us has passed 10 units, right? Um, no. So that's really the next hurdle if we choose to go there, right? And the other thing is you also don't have to go there. Um, the one last thing I'll quickly say here, and I know it's been a long answer, is $1 million if you're dealing with 25 unit apartment buildings is not too much money, right? Because even if you think about the renovation budget on 25 units at, um, you're going to see how bad my math is here, but I think 25 units at 20K per unit is about 500K in rentals alone, let alone your down payment and your loan to value, which is probably going to be lower on the buy as well, right? So you can quickly erode $1 million in an apartment building. I think that that's everything. So the second question, Austin, you want to take this one on the first part? Yeah. So uh, second question, cash for keys process and what to do if they don't want to do it. So they insist on staying. Good question. Um, and we tend to get this question quite a bit. I do want to preface this by saying you can't necessarily force anyone out of the property if they're not doing anything wrong and they're paying rent on a timely manner. Um, for those who don't know what cash for keys is, let's let's elaborate on that first. Essentially, it's a transaction in which you are providing money to a tenant in exchange for them leaving the property. And the reason why people do this is, is because if you have a low paying tenant on a unit, um, you're better off giving them money and they leave. So you increase rent, right? So you increase the cash flow of the property. Now, let's talk about the actual cash for keys process. Essentially, the point you want to get across is, look, like um, you're, you you want to first start off with uh, kind of a place of authority. I think where a lot of people go wrong is they don't have confidence when going in that transaction. And without lack of confidence, people are not going to take you seriously. So whenever I go to any cash for keys conversation, I come from a place of authority. So I am reasonable. Right. So it's not like I'm unfair. I'm reasonable, but very stern as well. So that's kind of the aura I give on. I find that works most effective. Secondly, is, is that the point you want to get across for, for most conversations is, is that look like either I bought this property kind of as an investment or my company has bought this property as investment. You're going to work with us to leave or we're going to have to find a way to um, kind of kind of get you out. And again, this depends on the circumstance of the type of tenants. Right. Um, but you don't say it exactly that way. So how I've approached it is, is um, from kind of an emotional point of view, right? And, and kind of digging down and seeing what would best help them transition to leave. So let me give you an example. Um, I, I might be going a bit long on this, but I think it's an important conversation. Um, so let me give you a real life example. I'll go in in a unit and say, hi, my name's Austin. I work for um, this company who purchased the property. No, I'm going to stop there. I like to say I'm working for a company because if I say I'm the landlord, there's already a standoffish vibe. Um, I want to be kind of the messenger, the bearer of bad news, but not the decision maker. Ultimately, I'm just following company demands. Right. So I usually go in and say, hey, I'm working for the company who purchased this property um, and we are planning to turn this entire property around. For the most part, it's pretty distressed. I'm, I'm sure you know you've lived here for a while. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. It's not really livable in the condition it is now. It's not safe to live in. 
Um, so here's how it's going to go down. Typically, our company will issue what's called an N13, which is eviction via renovations, right? Um, we're working on getting permits. And once we get permits, the process is going to get started. You'll have four months to leave, right? Um, and that's going to be that. Otherwise, uh, and that's going to be costly for us. What we'd much rather do is to help you during your transition, because we know this is fairly last minute notice. Um, you probably lived here for quite a while. It's not an easy transition. So we want to help you. If we don't go through the N13 process, we're going to save quite a bit of money and we're going to save money on time as well because we're paying a lot in interest rates for this property. So any savings that we would have with the N13 process, we'd rather give that money directly to you to help you out during that transition to find a new place, right? Cover your moving costs, cover your first and last month's rent. Um, and that way it's a win for us because the company ultimately um, kind of gets to start on the project a bit earlier. And for you, you get to take all of the money um, that we saved and, and keep it for your next kind of transition. I somewhat lay it down like that. Not always the case. It's kind of kind of feeling the process and situation out a bit, but you want to try to work with the tenant as well. Right. And when you kind of phrase it in the way that, look, you're there to kind of help them during the transition and support them along the way, you have a much greater chance than just going in and saying, here's five thousand dollars. Get out. And the last thing that I'm going to cover is how do you determine how much money to give for cash for keys? Well, typically, Mayu and I, we look for a 100% return on an investment. And what that means is, for example, let's say that your property is rented out at $1,000 right now and mark your rent as $2,000, right? So the incremental increase in rent would be $1,000 because you could rent it out at $2,000, rent it out at $1,000 now, $2,000 minus $1,000 is $1,000. So you could potentially rent it at $1,000 more every single month. So our maximum cash for keys offer will be 1,000 times 12, which is 12K, right? And the reason being is because although we're giving out 12K to that one tenant, when we increase the rent, right, we make all of that money back within a year's timeline. Now, we don't always try to target one year immediately. We try to obviously negotiate lower and then move our way up. But that's kind of an idea to give you a quick 101 on cash for keys. Um, it's a it's a question that we can create an entire episode on, but I hope that kind of helps. You can't necessarily force someone out, and I don't try to force people out. If people say there's no way I'm accepting it, I'm staying here. I tell them that's totally fine. We'll have to go through the N13 process then in that case, and they might change their mind later. Um, but I'll leave it at that. Mai, do you want to take on the second part, or do you yeah. have anything to add on? No, I, I think that was great. Uh, the second question, the individual, was process for dealing with non-payment slash late payment of rent, if possible, a step-by-step process starting with the second of the month and where to go from there. Uh, let me make it super easy. I think if it's your first time and the first time I had to deal with this, I just hired a paralegal as well. And no one really wants to, right? But at least you can learn everything the right way and do it the right way from the get-go. Um, so that would be my first recommendation. But general process is on the second of the month, you serve a N4, which basically there's a bunch of rules in the N4, which when you read it, you'll see it's like if you deliver by mail, there's a certain amount of days. And if you deliver by like in hand, there's a bunch of days or whatever, right? So, but let's just say like, it's about like 14 days that you got to wait, right? So then um, you serve the N4, which basically demands that they pay you rent within 14 days. In the meantime, if you know that they're not going to be paying you the rent, you you have to prepare, what's that form awesome with the LTB? Is it the L3 it's or the L1? L1. So you got to prepare the L1. Uh, and then after the 14 days are over, so on day 15 after the second, so that would I think puts you at the 16th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so after the 14 days are over, you file the L1 with the LTB, which is basically saying, hey, I've served the N4, individual hasn't paid me rent, need an eviction date, whatever. They're going to give you a date. Likely, this is at least going to be like four months down the road. 
Um, and then when you go there, you, you're, you, you generally go to a mediator first, right? When you go to the court date, uh, it's not even a court, it's a, whatever, it's a court, I guess, but it's a board, whatever you want to call it. Um, when you go there, you're going to meet with the mediator first. Mediator's entire objective is more so to get the tenant on a payment plan, right? And if you refuse the payment plan and then you go in front of what they call to be like a judge, it's just not generally in your favor to like not be willing to work with a tenant and come off as like this hard ass landlord, right? So I just put my tenants on a payment plan. Generally that payment plan, what, what it'll say is tenant has to pay you on the first of the month for rent moving forward. And then they've got to pay you, uh, let's say they owe you $10,000. They got to pay you $1,000 a month on the 15th, right? So it's like, okay, like it's highly unlikely the tenant's actually going to pay you this rent. But then when, when they do default from that, you don't have to go through the entire eviction process again. You kind of get a shortcut where you can just go to the LTB, let them know. It's like an office at the LTB, not really the court. Um, you just let them know that, hey, tenant hasn't paid me rent. Um, I'm going to be filing for the sheriff's eviction order. LTB takes your forms. They give you like some sort of stamp like three days later, just basically approving everything. And then you take that to the sheriff. Sheriff will take a couple of weeks to come in and eventually, eventually like remove the tenant, right? Throughout this process, like it could easily be six to eight months. For me, the first time, I think it was six months, if I'm not mistaken. The second time was about like eight months, right? So I'd always just move towards like, if you can structure some sort of cash for keys negotiation, right? Just go to them and say, hey, look, like this place might not be affordable for you guys, or, you know, there's been some sort of change in life circumstances. Why don't I help you guys out? Um, I'll give you a little bit of extra cash or whatever, like to help you guys move along to a new place or a new new location or whatever, right? Um, you can cre- create that kind of win-win. And while it sucks because the tenant hasn't paid you rent, let go of your ego. And it's just generally better to, you know, structure something that's a win-win, even though you're kind of losing, but yeah. <laughs> that's the key thing. Let go of your ego and, you know, just kind of work with the tenant. <laughs> Cause I know a lot of us, fuck, why should I work with them? They, they, yeah. they're not paying me rent. Now I got to pay them money, but it is what it is. We'll, we'll jump to the third one. I noticed this is a financing one. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Maya, you feel free to chime in if I miss anything. Cause you're financing King here. Um, yeah. what to do if you are out of stage after a couple of properties and stuck at a roadblock of affording 20% down payments. Um, so, and they, in brackets, they put financing roadblock. Okay. So with any real estate transaction, there's the money people deal. You can fund all of that yourself, right? Um, in this case, the people doesn't seem to be the issue. So you have your management team, power team in place. Uh, the deal doesn't seem to be the issue. It's the money deal and money usually deals with financing and capital, right? So, um, couple things you can do here. First thing is, is that you can approach uh, joint venture partners, right? Um, if you don't have enough money for 20% down payment, or you can't get financing, um, you can work with other partners who have that half that you're missing. So if you have, let's say, some of that money, but you don't have any financing capacity, you can structure a joint venture in which that person brings the other half of the money equation, right? Or that person brings the entire part of the money equation, the down payment and the and the uh, financing uh, capacity. And that way you're able to scale um, uh, and continue to buy properties. That one, that's what Mayu and I did, right? When we ran out of down payment, we started enlisting joint ventures to help us buy properties. And we were the active partners in that transaction. Um, there's another way to go about it. Joint ventures are not for everyone. You can go about it in private money. So you can purchase a property with uh, private money, whether that be 100% loan to value, which is a bit harder, um, which seems to be the route that you might need to go. Or you can go 80% loan to value and then raise the rest of the 20% via um, either credit cards, lines of credit, whatever the case is. In private money, they're a bit more flexible. That remaining down payment doesn't need to come from your bank account or they don't verify that uh, per se. So you can close the property 100% on uh, private financing, do the work you need, and then 
move it over to a bank once you have 20% equity built in, right? And you can refi it. Um, that's another approach to do it. Obviously, it's a bit more risk to it because you're paying high interest rates. You really need to know what you're doing. Time is of the essence because it's going to cost more money if there's any delays or things of that nature. Um, or alternatively, I mean, um, so what what the Maya can probably touch on this. What I was going to mention is the 20% down coming from lines of credit, but that's a gray area. It's not really a gray yeah. area. I suggest not doing it really. Um, yeah. But Maya, was there anything else I missed on? Uh, no, I would just say the line of credits. I generally just to tell people, use your line of credit for the renovations, figure out another source for like your actual down payment. Because if you're out of money on the down payment, you're probably out of money on the renovations as well. Um, the other sources, I guess there's a VTB and a credit on closing, both of which make a lender financing, like the big five Canadian bank financing, pretty challenging. Um, so you're most likely looking at a B and your ratios have to be pretty healthy because we got re- we got to factor in that there's a VTB. I honestly tell people like VTBs get a lot of hype. I mean, they're good. But in my opinion, if you can win on the price, right? Like let's say a market, like if you're looking at 200K with a VTB and you're looking at 180K with no VTB, I would take the 180K and then I would pay someone else 10K in interest and get the 20% from them for a shorter period of time, right? So usually it's, it's when you're when you're kind of stuck on price, seller's not willing to budge. That's when you go for a VTB. Not really the first move as, okay, this is how I'm going to afford my, my, afford my property is by getting a VTB on whatever property I buy, right? It's not, it's not a great strategy. You might as well raise the money in, in private debt um, and, and go about it from that way. Oh, one more thing to oh. lastly add on. Um, you can move on to bigger multifamilies, right? So if with some banks, it could be five units plus. With some banks, it's six unit plus, depending on what the bank is. Um, in that situation, typically the financial institution will take a look at the asset first, followed by the borrower's profile second, right? So the asset usually qualifies you. Yeah. Um, but that's that. We can jump on to the next question. Uh, hey guys, I have a question regarding financing. Will A lenders accept the 80% loan to value if the seller offers 10%? <laughs> oh, we should have read this first. <laughs> if the seller offers 10% second position mortgage and you put up the other 10%. Also, how does the refinancing work if you're trying to implement the burr on this? How much of the forced equity will you get as cash on a refinance? So, so a vendor take back um, or a second position mortgage, I guess two different, uh, the seller offers a 10% second position mortgage. So basically it's a VTB, right? So it's when the seller is selling a property. This usually happens in situations where either A, the product is hard to finance, so unlivable condition or significantly de- deteriorate or something like that, or B, the seller wants top price, then you go at them with top terms, right? Where you can get super delayed closing or you can get some sort of second position mortgage, a couple other things you could do like credits on closing and so on. Um, but as, uh, a VTB is basically the seller agreeing to give you 10% of the, of the purchase price. So let's say you buy that property for 200K we talked about, Seller is going to give you 10% as a second position mortgage at whatever rate you guys agree on. The bank in an ideal world would give you 80% loan to value. And then really all you have to cough up is the other 10%, right? So I think um, the individual that asked this question probably knows the answer to this is that the Canadian banks won't let you have a second position mortgage registered on title at the same time of closing. So essentially they won't give you a mortgage if you have a VTB in place. There are B lenders that will let you get around this. And the main thing, once again, is going to come down to what are your ratios like? And can your ratios afford the, the, the normal mortgage plus the VTB interest and, and minimum payments, which they're probably going to treat as if it's an amortized mortgage rather than just interest only payments, right? So the key behind the VTB with the B lenders is just, will your ratios work? And a lot of times it does mess up a lot of individuals. Um, what I tell people is a better approach is if you're able to bring in some sort of short-term financing for um, a couple of days, a week or two, and then if you go to another lawyer and you register that VTB with another lawyer, 
Um, that's another route that people have done. I'm not saying I've done it. I'm not saying I condone it, but it's just a strategy that, yeah. <laughs> and the, the second part of the question is how much of the force equity will you get as cash on a refinance? So we're continuing off the same example, 80% loan to value from the bank and the seller offered 10% second position mortgage. So you put up 10% down payment. Let's assume you have to pay the 10% second position mortgage back as well on time of refinance, just for simplicity's sakes. That's what a lot of people end up doing anyway. And VTB terms are usually not five years. They're usually a year or two on max for most people, right? So when you refinance, you're refinancing at the new market value or appraised value at 80% loan to value, right? So you take whatever that money um, that you refi out, you pay down the old mortgage, um, and the old mortgage is 90% loan to value, right? 80% of that portion is to the bank, 10% of that portion is to the seller, and then whatever that, like you subtract the new mortgage from the old mortgage, which is again, 90% loan to value. That's how much money you pulled out or left in the deal. I hope that kind of makes sense. Like it's hard to explain without having exact numbers, right? Yeah. We can put some rough numbers on this, right? So if you bought a property at 200K, you got 90%, so 80% from the bank, 10% from the seller. So 90% of 200K is 180K in mortgage that you have right now. You did some renovations. It's called like 10 grand in renovations. Now the property is worth 250K. When you go to the bank now to refinance it, they're going to give you 80% of 250K, right? So they're going to give you 200K in a new mortgage. You take that 200K, you got to repay your bank, original bank financing, which is 160. You got to repay the seller financing, which was 20. What you're left with is about $20,000. This is obviously an overly simplistic example because we didn't factor in like holding costs, like lawyer costs, stuff like that. But just to give you guys an idea of um, what you're looking at here, right? So the next question, is it worth buying out HWT, so hot water tank and furnace rentals on two to four unit buildings. It will improve cash flow. But if it's a residential mortgage, their appraisal is coming from comp. So we'll add value to the refi. So um, I, I guess this is two parts. The first part is the easier of the two, which is does buying out a hot water tank and furnace improve um, your appraisal value? The short and sweet answer is no, it doesn't. Um, from my experience of getting 20 plus properties appraised, no one has ever asked me, do you own this furnace or hot water tank, right? So short and sweet, they don't. And I've never seen anyone adjust accordingly, right? None, No appraisers adjust up or down in value based on that. What they might adjust value on is the year of the furnace and hot water tank. Mm. Not always. Like if you have a a 30-year-old furnace, then yeah, they might say like yours is less valuable than a newer property that has a new furnace, even though that new property might rent the furnace, right? Um, that's just a high level kind of answer to that, um, short and sweet. And the second part of this question is, is it worth buying out a hot water tank and furnace on two to four unit buildings? I really think the analysis is the same when you deal with single families, two to four unit, or even apartment buildings. And it really comes down to what's your payback period um, and how long are you planning to hold a property? For example, let's say that uh, your furnace and hot water tank rental is $100 a month which is $1,200 a year. I know that sounds very high, but just easy numbers. I'm not as good as uh, mental math as Mayu. So that's $1,200 per year, right? Um, And let's say to buy out the contract is $2,400, right? To buy out the contract and just own the property, Uh, not own the property, own the furnace and hot water tank, right? Um, So your payback period is two years, if that makes sense. So 2,400 divided by 1,200 equals two years. So if you plan to hold this property, longer than two years, then yes, it does make sense um, to buy out the hot water tank and furnace because after the first two years, 
any additional cash flow you're getting is actually incremental money going in the bank. Whereas the first two years being is being spent, the first two years of cash flow is being spent paying back that initial lump sum payment um, that you made on the hot water tank and furnace. Another thing to keep in mind is is your personal situation as well. What if you do need that money, that $2,400 you're using to pay out the hot water tank and furnace? Um, do you need that money now for emergency? Do you want to save it or do something else with it? Because if so, um, it doesn't make sense for you to take that lump sum amount and, and buy out the hot water tank and furnace. But those are just my thoughts. Mayu, do you have anything to add on uh, to this? The only thing I'd add is that for like, like you said, it's, it's all like everything you said is good. I think uh, the only thing is for an apartment building, so greater than four units, which uh, individual is not really asking about, but greater than four units, that's where you have net income to, to worry about and the valuation of the building. But this, I, I think if we assume that, you know, your appraisal is already done, you've already refinanced the property, then it just comes back to what's my payback period, right? Because now you're not, you're not even refinancing it. You really care about NOI and cap rates and stuff like that. But if you do, if, you, if you're appraising it, then you would probably buy out these kind of like rental items to improve your net income and therefore um, improve the, like increase the value of the building. Yeah, that's a very good point. Cool. Um, okay. This guy's a fan of Austin. All right. Hey, Austin, huge fan. I read your article on Toronto Life and been listening to your podcast too. How important is taking that class from Corey versus learning on your own with the book you recommended from Brandon Turner? So I think uh, this is actually a better question for you, Mayu, because um, uh, I believe you've, I don't know if you read that book from Brandon Turner. Have you actually? Which one is it? The, the book on, book on investing in rental properties? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I read it like a while ago. Okay. So, so books are great. So here's my general thought. and. and um, I can understand why people would also see it as a bias because I do work with Corey. So um, just acknowledging that as well. But I think books are great. The great educational tool. I think a coach is more for accountability to help you move forward and faster and bigger, right? And if that's not your goal, if you're comfortable buying like one property a year, 100%, you do not need a coach, right? If your goal is to buy aggressively to grow significantly, that's when I think coaching makes the most sense to get a lot of the fundamental questions and stuff like that answered books, YouTube videos, podcasts, like that, that shit like covers a lot of the basic education. That's where I probably learned the most, but what coaching helped me do at least individually is the accountability, right? Cause every single week you're moving forward. There's no such thing as an off week or that week when you have your call with your coach, you're going to be like, shit, I didn't do my homework. Like my bad, I messed up. Right. And it's like, well, why would I pay this amount of money to mess up? Right. So I think a big part of accountability is going to be, uh, sorry, a big part of coaching is going to be accountability. The second biggest part is going to be your network, right? Being surrounded by people that are doing the same thing that you're doing or bigger and better, right? Which will then motivate you to do even more bigger and better. Right. Uh, so I think those are two pillars for coaching. Like that's at least like what I, I found is a valuable part of it. But what about you, Austin? Like you asked that question. Yeah, spot on. I, I totally agree with you. Um, so books, videos, um, news articles, uh, reading blogs, those are great learning resources. And to be honest with you, coaching won't necessarily take you through that. Um, coaching, again, as Mayu said, is accountability. You have to still kind of do your own research on the fundamentals. Um, one thing to realize is that you can scale aggressively either way it's just kind of like you have that accountability on your side when you when you have a coach um but i didn't start getting a coach in my real estate journey until i had a couple of properties under my belt um uh james fernandez who was uh, one of our guests in i think either the previous podcast or the episode before that he didn't hire a coach until he had i don't know 60 units right? So it is definitely not needed. It's a personal situation, depending on you and yourself, if you're self-motivated or not. Um, Because one thing that James did, because I like to use as an example, because he's in a success story without a coach. 
or even Kellen James as well, who was also on our podcast, is, is that they went out to a ton of networking events and they've consciously made an effort to put themselves out there as well as they are high performers and set high goals for themselves, right? So it's always, they, they, they're self-motivated, if that makes sense. Not everyone's self-motivated. I know for Mayu, and uh, I'm not sure if I'm speaking, uh, if this is true or not for you, Mayu, but for myself, if I don't necessarily have accountability, there are some days where I might take it easier, some weeks where I might kind of slow down and not really realize how much that impacts me on my journey in the grand scheme of things, right? But those are kind of my thoughts. Like both of them are great. Both of them serve kind of two different um, aspects in your real estate journey. One of them is your accountability slash network. And the other is more of the fundamental and technical part of real estate. Um, You don't need coaching to necessarily succeed in real estate, but it is a tool. Think about it like weightlifting. It's a supplement like whey protein, creatine, all of those are supplements. It is a supplement to help you get there um, faster. Right. Um, But those are my thoughts. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I think that's right. Um, I'm just going to add one quick personal story to this. I've been struggling to go to the gym properly, like consistently for like years, right? Like probably like three years is probably the last time I consistently went to the gym. And I'd always tell myself, Hey, I'm, I'm going to consistently go to the gym, right? This year, back in like May or something like that, I was just tired of like, my body is deteriorated so much so fast from like all the work that we do, just like the real estate side, the driving side, just like, just like not taking care of your body. Right. So then I just hired a personal trainer and now I've been going to the gym twice a week. And then I do my own work. That's like once a week. Right. And it just, it makes you do that. Right. Cause now I'm paying someone, I've got a commitment at uh, this time on this day, I'm going to be in the gym at this time. Yeah. I, I don't know if Austin's trolling me or not, but I think he might just be tired, but yeah, I'm going to get jacked this year. Right. So my goal was always like, yeah, by the time I hit 30, which is essentially next October, I just want to be in the best shape of my life. And that's when bringing in a coach made sense. Cause I was like, I need the accountability. I need someone to push me along the way. And I, I have a goal that I want to hit at a rapid pace. Right. So, um, that's just like a personal story, not related to real estate, which you can attribute, which you can compare to your real estate journeys as well. Um, next one's more so common. Are you going to so- get deezed? We need a new photo, <laughs> eh? We need a new photo, cover photo for the podcast. Um, all right. The, the next, co- next one's more so a comment. Hey, loving the podcast. I'm hooked. Can you keep, uh, can you keep making content created content? Catered to new real estate investors, hoping to make the leap into their first property, but having no clue what to do. Hundred percent. I think we try to like bring in a lot of like new new investors to kind of showcase their part of the journey. But we also like to balance it. I think with more experienced investors that can kind of show you what the potential is and what that journey looks like. Because it's a lot of times people look at it and go, "Oh, that's impossible to get to." But really, it's like a it's like a two to three year journey, right? Nothing more than that. Check out um, our some of our earlier episodes as well for content like that. Yeah, you want you want to answer this one? Happy anniversary. You guys are so helpful. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to step in. Uh, th- thank you wasn't there. I added that comment in. Uh, I'm trying to step into investing. I have many questions to ask, but I'll limit it to two. So the first one, how do you choose contractors for a specific project? And what do you look in them to choose from the... Sorry, and what you look... Okay, sorry. Let me rephrase it. How do you choose contractors for a specific project and what do you look uh, in them to choose the best contractor? That's the first question. So maybe we can tackle that first. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, selecting contractors, it's, it's a lot about networking, right? That's how I was able to connect with my particular contractors. Um, there are different contractors you can use for different projects. For things like lipstick, what, by lipstick, I literally mean your paint and your flooring and maybe change like two or three light fixtures. Right. For things of that nature, you can use someone like a handyman. 
as long as the handyman's reliable, right? Because it's kind of low skill task. It's things that me and Maya can even pick up on if we get on went on YouTube and you know spent some time on it. Um, so for things of that nature, you can definitely choose um, kind of like handyman. But if you are looking on bigger scale projects, you want to use um, a general contractor, or I don't know if you're looking to uh, sub trade yourself. Um, but I'm assuming that you are going to use a general contractor in this sake. That's what I'm going to speak towards. Um, yeah, then that's largely through networking with um, kind of the other real estate investors. Because keep in mind, you're not going to be the first investor renovating a project, um, but you need to find out who has done what you want to do in that particular market and connect with those people. Because what you'll find in the real estate community, people are willing to share the resources and contacts if you put an effort there and try to add value to them as well. Um, so I will speak to maybe three or four different real estate investors, ask them for their contractor recommendations and real estate agent recommendations, call three or four different real estate agents, ask them for contractor recommendations, call three or four property managers, ask them for contractor recommendations. Um, so from that, like I'm speaking to, I don't know, that was probably like 12 or 16 people. I, I lost count. Um, and from those 12 or 16 people, I might have got four or five recommendations of contractors in total. And it's a matter of taking them to a project that you have or taking them to a potential project you want to pursue. Right. You might not have it under contract yet and have them walk through, walk through with them. Right. Have an experienced investor there with you during the walkthrough so that the contractor can explain things. And then after the contractor finishes that walkthrough, you can ask experienced investor questions as well. And you can kind of see how the experienced investors operate when they ask contractors questions. Um, but it's just leveraging your network again, right? Um, to to find the best contract to do the work for you. And I found that that I had the most success for myself. I don't come from a contracting background, um, but I, I find that when I network with other people, I usually find reliable team members. Mai, did you have anything to add on to that? No, the only thing I'd say is if you're in rural cities and far away areas, just be like, expect the contracting prices to be higher than if you're in the cities, which I know doesn't sound logical, but a lot of these contractors in those kind of cities and areas, like cottage country, for example, kind of have a monopoly on the area, right? Where like they're just used to doing less work for higher fees and they'll make the same amount of money as someone closer to the city, right? So if you're a contractor and if you're thinking about moving out to a rural city, it's a great idea. Sorry, and one um, more thing, actually, that I want to tag on, don't go for the cheapest price. That's something important that we, we need to mention is there's quality and there's price and time. They're kind of three pyramids, right? Time being um, being efficient and meeting timelines. You can't get all three of those things. So you have to trade off some. Um, now, as I get more experienced in real estate, I like to trade off my money for a contractor who's reliable, who's timely and who has quality work and does things well. Because if your contractor screws up, you have to go back and fix it anyway. Ultimately, it's gonna cost you more money. Um, but we'll jump on to the next question. Why don't you take that away? One thing I'll, I know I keep on adding on. One thing I did yesterday, it's a quick story. Um, so I was checking out uh, kitchen cabinets and, and uh, bathroom um, hardware, tubs, so on and so forth for a renovation project that we have. Um, and I saw a couple of contractors walk in, walk out. Then I just went to the store owner and I was like, hey, um, no, you have a lot of contractor clients coming in and out. I was wondering if you know any um, who was in the nearby area who needs some work. Um, I have 15 units on the go right now needing to be renovated. Here's my contact info. If you do know anyone, please do make the connection, right? Um, we'll be more than happy to shoot your referral fee if I, do, if I decide to work with one of these contractors. 
Um, so like always keep that top of mind as well, right? You see contractors go in and out of hardware stores, you can try to get their contact info. Anyways, we're gonna wrap up there and move on to the next one. I just have a bunch of ideas popping in my mind. <laughs> Um, okay, so this one's from Mayurin, the one guy that will actually just call out for his question here. Um, Mayurin's asking, um, how do you burr a strip club? And so we were initially just going to laugh this one off, but I do think there is a story behind it, right? So um, burring sounds like a new concept to a lot of people in the real estate community. The reality is it's existed for, for much longer than anyone, that, like anyone really thinks, right? Like if you talk to some of the older real estate investors, they were like, oh yeah, we were burring before it was even called burring, right? If you talk to what's interesting is if you talk to private equity investors, like individuals that invest in small businesses um, that are kind of cash cows, it's essentially the same model, right? They're buying these businesses, they're improving net income. They're usually buying them with either investors or some sort of hard money loans or some sort of like complicated, not complicated, but some sort of more expensive financing structure, right? And then they're improving the overall operations of the business. And then they're going back to a cheaper lender or bank and saying, okay, refinance me based on the new value of the business, right? So a strip club would actually be bird very similar to any sort of multifamily business where if you can in increase the net income, you can essentially go back to the bank, convince them that the value is a lot higher than what you purchased it at, refinance and repay back your investors that invested with you, my urine in that strip club. <laughs> got to throw in some shade. <laughs> my has my got to take the fun out of a question, eh? <laughs> um, so how can someone join, I guess this is targeted towards Ontario property deals, how can someone join the wholesale team and what are steps you recommend a new wholesaler to take to get their first deal? Okay, in terms of uh, joining um, our wholesale team, we are not actively looking for acquisitions managers now, but we do have plans to actually grow our team in the near future. We just have, um, we just hired three new acquisitions managers on board a couple of months ago and we're, they're going through vigorous training. We sent out I think it's like nine close to 90 or 100,000 flyers um Jeez. Uh, so far 100,000 flyers run you now uh, oh we're we're spending right now about 30 grand on flyer close to 20 to 30 grand on flyers a month um yeah. i don't remember what the exact amount of flyers that is but it, it is quite a bit we're going pretty aggressive but yeah so stay in tune uh shoot me an email austin at ontario property deals deals with an s.ca um, that you're interested in joining. And if there's a future opportunity, I will let you know. And, and that goes to anyone else listening to this podcast. Um, but yeah, okay. So we'll, we'll skip through Austin, that part. Enough sales. Austin's going to get a, a bunch of emails just asking about general advice now. I probably will. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are the steps though? Like, the, like what, do you, what, do you, what does a new wholesaler generally do? Like yeah. on a high level. Yeah. So in, in wholesaling, there are a couple of aspects. One of them is lead generation, right? So when it comes to wholesaling, you need to get a deal. So you need to generate leads to get a deal. There are, and we talked about this before, um, but there are the high energy, low cost ways. So things like door knocking. And I'll say this, um, I've heard a couple of wholesalers um, who, not a couple, like maybe even two or three wholesalers max, guess that's a couple who are doing door knocking nowadays. And uh, it works wonders. You know why? Because no one wants to do door knocking because it's too time consuming. It's a lot of effort. You got to keep in contact with these people. You got to drive around, hit neighborhoods. It's awkward when people don't like to do a specific method. Uh, that typically means there's less competition and it's going to work more effectively. Right. And it's not like you're going to get a deal the first week or two weeks. It might take a couple of months. Um, but it is going to work probably better than any of the other methods that I'm going to talk about. Right. But that's something that you can get started is starting with door knocking. Um, and when you door knock, you go and say, hey, um, do you know anyone? Who, I know this is out of the blue, but do you know anyone who's looking to sell a property because you don't want to be direct? 
He's like, oh, maybe. No, not really. Oh, okay. Um, no worries. Um, have you ever considered selling your property? Right. And a bit awkward, but they might say no. Yeah, maybe. And if they say maybe, then you kind of pursue the conversation from there. Um, go on Kijiji. Um, look at for like message for rent ads on Facebook Marketplace. Um, I, there are so many driving for dollars. There are so many ways to go about um, doing high energy, low cost activities to get your first deal. And I do recommend that for some of the newer wholesalers, because one thing about wholesaling is you need a personality, a grit, and that kind of helps you build grit. And also when you get your first deal, it'll help fund some of the more, uh, some of the marketing channels that cost a bit more money for your future deals, right? Because you could spend 10 grand and, and not get a single deal and feel unmotivated and quit wholesaling. So I find typically the low energy, again, the low energy ways, not low energy, the high energy, low cost ways are a better way to get started, build that capital foundation, then reinvest that into other marketing avenues. Um, then there are things like mailers, uh, Google ads, advertise, uh, advertising digitally, things that cost money. Uh, I don't recommend that for a new wholesaler off the bat because we spent 20 grand on digital advertising before we get our first deal there. So like it, it is very expensive, right? Um, so that's, I know this is a long answer, but first aspect, lead generation. Second aspect is uh, negotiation, getting the deal under contract. So once you generate the leads, you're going to need to be able to talk to them on the phone, negotiate, go face to face with the seller, try to get the deal under contract, right? Um, once you're able to get that deal in a contract, then now you got to sell it off to an investor and people tend to think this is easy, which is really not. People want to just go on Facebook and post a deal on there and find a buyer. To be honest with you, of all of the deals that we wholesaled, maybe one of them, two maximum, two is being generous, have come from Facebook. Almost everyone else has come from our buyers list, right? Um, so you want to work on building a strong buyers list. Um, people who are going to reliably buy deals from you who have a strong buyer profile, they're cash buyers, um, they can close quickly. You want to work on networking and building a connection of those people, getting their emails, and then whenever you get a deal, shoot it off to them, right? Or I know Mike Nowicki, who's another wholesaler, he builds genuine relationships with some investors. Like for, for example, with me in Windsor, Mike Nowicki, before I was wholesaling, he said, hey, Austin, honey, Windsor deals, I'm going to shoot it over to you first, because it's all about the relationship. And he knew that I was a cash buyer as well and able to move quickly. Um, so build those type of relationships um, with buyers. But that's the three steps is one is lead generation. Two is getting the deal under contract via negotiation and things of that nature. Three is finding an end buyer. Um, so you need to work on doing all of those three things concurrently if you're a new wholesaler, which could be a lot to take in, which uh, might make sense to partner with an existing wholesaler or work for an existing wholesaler if that's the case, if you don't want to build it from the ground up. But I'm going to leave it at that. Um, I, I spent way too much time on that. <laughs> All right. Um, Austin, Mayu, can you guys talk about debt equity? Torn between paying off my asset and using the money to scale up. Thanks, guys. So, so like, this is what I'll tell you, right? Like, we, we both have our minimum criteria. And I always tell people, like, my minimum criteria are kind of ridiculous just because, like, when you have a portfolio now for you to keep buying, your returns need to be better and better and better for the incremental work that you do, right? Um, but when it, when it comes to your own individual situation, talking about paying off your asset versus using the money to scale up, it's going to come down to your goals, right? Like, what do you really want to do? Do you want to scale up, right? And if you do, well, then paying off your mortgage probably isn't going to make that much of a difference when you can redeploy that capital a lot better and a lot faster into other more productive assets, right? Now, if you're someone that um, is in some sort of like an unstable job or like personal situation, whatever it is, and you want to pay off that mortgage for peace of mind, 
that actually makes a lot of sense too. Like it's not always about the numbers. It's not always about the ROI. There are things aside from making money in life that matters too, right? Like just like having the peace of mind. Cause periodically with me and my wife, I've talked about it. I was like, why, what if I just like pay off the mortgage? But like, ultimately for us, it's, we're, we're so young that like, what am I going to do if, if I pay off the mortgage? Like that's just like inefficient utilization of my capital and my risk tolerance is a little bit higher, but that doesn't mean like, for example, my dad, 65, 70 years old almost. And yeah, he's like in no, he has no intention to refinance his property. Like he, he's no like mortgage free. Right. And like, you just get like a peace of mind, like stable living, you're going into retirement. Right. So ultimately the answer to this question is going to depend on your personal situation and what your goals are. Um, I always tell people just start with your goals and work them backwards. Right. Like if your goal is to get 50 units in like two years, like how are you going to do that on a yearly basis, then on a quarterly, then on a monthly, what do you need to do? What, what kind of lead measures do you need to take? To allow you to to hit that 50 unit target right um one thing i do want to add is that um if it's debt equity and you refi it and your asset becomes cash flow negative it might be mm-hmm. worthwhile selling that asset altogether and trading off to another asset that is going to produce you cash flow or has better returns that's one thing to keep in mind um and as my said peace of mind second thing is is that is this your primary residence um right because again that the primary residence factor really ties into peace of mind because your primary residence isn't necessarily generating you any uh, money and it could generate you money if you decide to, I don't know, reinvest that into other real estate assets that produce higher returns. But keep in mind to get other assets that produce higher returns, it could be like a five or six month process, right? Like you got to buy it, renovate it, all that money's coming out. And while all that's happening, you're paying down that increased refied amount of your debt equity of your primary residence. So it's a lot of cash outflow. It's an uneasy feeling for a lot of people which I guess that's not a separate point, but that ties back into Mayu's point of, it depends on your risk tolerance, right? You got to take all of these things into factor. But yeah, we can move on to the next question now. Um, okay, I'll answer the next one as well. Hey guys, congrats on your one year anniversary, time flies. Yes, yes, it does indeed. Uh, my question for you guys is, how do you buy properties under a corp that you already have? Is it recommended to start a new corp? What are some of the things one needs to be aware of when buying properties under a corp? Uh, like this entire corp structure is a huge, like, it's a huge question here without like, I'll try to answer it as concise as possible, right? So is it recommended to start a new corp? Yes, in my opinion, I like to have uh, my real estate holdings in a standalone corp. For example, like if Austin's got his wholesaling business, you probably wouldn't want to start buying real estate properties to hold long-term under that same corporation because now your entire business becomes at risk as a result of your one property and the liability associated with that property, right? But I always tell people the corporate structure doesn't really protect anyone from any kind of liability. You can always pierce the corporate veil if you're a director of your corporation, which most people are, right? And usually if there's something that's a lawsuit related, it's a result of director negligence, right? Which then allows them to pierce the corporate veil anyway. So what protects you personally is insurance more than um, just having that property in a corporation, but that's not even the question. So is it recommended to start a new corp? Yes. What are some things one needs to be aware of when buying properties under a corp? You're going to get commercial financing, which is based on different criteria as residential financing. Um, your appraisal, and that's not to be confused with an appraisal, because if you buy something that's two to four units, your appraisal will still be based on market comparables, but your financing will be commercial financing, which is just a little bit more challenging. And if you're trying to buy single family houses and duplexes and so on, generally speaking, your debt service ratios aren't going to be high enough, I'd assume, depending on where you buy. Obviously, if you buy in Sault Ste. Marie, it's probably going to be higher, right? But for most cities, your debt service ratio will not be high enough in a single family house or even a duplex for you to buy it under a corporation with favorable terms. Um, so I always tell people it's two to four units, buy it personally. If you need, if you want it to be under a corp, 
set up a new corp, bear trust agreement to that corp, which basically means that, hey, I'm buying this asset for all financing purposes, but the legal rights of this asset, rent, et cetera, is all that of the corporation. I'm just holding it in trust for the corporation, hence a bear trust agreement. So that would be my general thing, uh, super high level on taxes. Um, real estate income and interest income earned in corp is taxed at something like 50% or somewhere around there, like 51, 53, whatever. Um, so what you need to do is you need to set up a three-tiered corporate structure. Um, there are definitely cheap accountants out there that could do this for six, six to $800 per corp. But what you probably want is someone that actually knows the real estate law, uh, not real estate law, but real estate rules, which is going to cost you closer to 1500 to 2500 per corp which means you've got at least somewhere around four to $6,000 in filing fees on a yearly basis. So setting up that corp structure properly has its costs, which you have to determine whether it's actually tax efficient and financially efficient for you to do. Yeah. So it's worthwhile more so when you have a couple of properties under your belt, right? Because as Maya was saying, that's four to $6,000. Uh, additional in filing every single year. So you want to make sure that your cash flow supports that. You don't want to put yourself in a cash flow negative position if you don't even generate that a year. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but- like me, I, I think me and Austin, we both, what, like had like 10 or 15 properties before we even had a corp, right? Um, and then if you're flipping, you might as well do it in a corp. If you're wholesaling, you might as well do it in a corp. Any kind of active business income, you might as well do it in a corp. But generally, yeah. Cool. What's the best way for someone young and with little capital to get, to get started into real estate investing? Yeah, that's a good question. And we get that quite a bit. Um, depends on the level of where you're getting started off uh, from. The first thing I would try to do is is find a mentor. And that's what I did when I was in real estate, right? And by find a mentor, I don't mean like kind of go to someone who has like a paid coaching program and ask them to mentor you for free. But that I mean, find a mentor who has maybe if let's, I assume you have like no properties because you're getting started in real estate investing, find a mentor with someone who has like maybe two or three properties because they're ahead of you in their journey and know enough to guide you along the process as well. You can follow them into the different projects, help them out whenever needed at no cost. So if they're going down to Windsor, for example, and and need to handle something, you can tag along with them um, or you can drive down and offer them to do it. like, hey, why don't I go down to Windsor on your behalf and do X, Y, Z for you? Because you learn along the way doing these things. If they're looking for contractors and say, I need to call 10 people, um, shit, it's going to take a lot of time. Be like, hey, why don't I call 10 people on your behalf? Or I call five, you call five, right? Things of that nature. So you want to observe, uh, absorb as much information as possible um, and learn from someone who's more experienced than you. On top of that, the same old advice we usually give, go on YouTube, watch videos of other real estate investors talking about different topics. Matt McKeever, I think he changed his YouTube channel to what, Canadian Real Estate Channel. He's a great source of Canadian real estate information. Read real estate books. Um, such as Brandon Turner's book, the book on investing in rental property. It'll help on building the technicals. And most importantly, you also read mindset books, right? Things such as Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, uh, what, what was the other one? Their Richest Man in Babylon. I yeah. think you can grow rich. <laughs> books like that, that help kind of develop the mindset. Because what we find as new investors is we set a lot of limiting beliefs and obstacles along the way that aren't necessarily true, Right. Um, and it's these books that help break the mindset and also networking with other experienced investors, working with mentors that help kind of mold or reshape our thoughts, which is important when navigating in the real estate journey, because we're always going to set hurdles for ourselves. And in terms of buying your first property, a couple of ways you can do it. Obviously, saving is one of them. 
Second, we talked about it before, but buying buying things for private uh, loans and capital. I don't suggest it, especially if it's your first property, right? Because it's a, it's a lot of risk or joint venturing with someone, right? Um, I don't know if your parents have debt equity and they're willing to kind of, you know, like bear the risk with you. You can try to do that. Um, but th- those are kind of my thoughts on someone young and with not much capital to get started. Um, so the next question, how do you figure out the ARV of a property? Let's assume um, this is all residential, by the way, Maya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's keep it easy, right? Um, okay. So ARV, you need to start with the data, right? It's the simplest thing. And I've seen so many of these appraisal reports at this point that I have a pretty solid idea of how it all works. So they're going to start with the similar type of asset as yours, right? So let's just keep it. Let's, let's develop a scenario here. So we're talking about a single family house in Windsor, because we all know that like inside and out, at least me in Austin. Um, single family house in Windsor, Walkerville area, right? So they're going to start with comping your property against so after repair value is ARV, um, an appraisal is required to determine what your ARV is for the bank. So the appraiser is going to start with, okay, I'm going to look at the single family houses that sold within usually like a three to five block radius within the same kind of area in Windsor, right? So in Walkerville. Um, so they're going to they're gonna put up all the single family houses and then they're going to look at, okay, what is the condition of your property? What are the number of bedrooms? Is your garage? Yes or no. Um, what's the overall like like, is there a finished basement suite, right? They're going to find the comparable properties to your property, right? Um, so let's say they come up with three properties, but they're not, no two properties are exactly the same, right? Like, I, I think everyone can agree on that. Like my condo, even compared to the condo right above us, which is probably the exact same floor plan in the same building is going to be different because maybe my condo has parking. The one above us doesn't have parking. Maybe the one above us has a renovated kitchen and bathroom. Uh, mine is unrenovated, right? So no two properties are ever, generally speaking, the exact same. So an appraiser is going to start with these three comps and then they're going to adjust for what they think is the value of that, right? So if a kitchen in the condo above me is renovated, then they're going to discount the value of my condo against their condo by about $10,000 or something like that, right? How they come up with that $10,000, $15,000, $5,000 for a bedroom, $5,000 for a bathroom, whatever, is going to be based on their local expertise and knowledge of the market. And that's where it's really valuable for you to be a local expert as well. Because if you start studying enough of these comps, if you start studying the market and knowing what everything is selling for, you'll know what an extra bedroom sells for, right? Like we know, for example, in a student rental area in Windsor, an extra bedroom could, above ground could easily increase the value of that property, 60, 70, $80,000, right? And an appraiser will know that as well. Right. So they'll be able to discount the property. Hopefully the appraiser will know that. Yeah, hopefully. Right. <laughs> so they'll, they'll basically start with three comps and they'll adjust that for things like the, the renovations, the number of bedrooms, bathrooms, finished basement, sometimes garage, sometimes roof structure. Like Austin said, sometimes the uh, age of the equipment, a couple of different variables like that. And they'll arrive at um, a final adjusted price for all three comparables. And then they'll take the average of those three. Right. Um, so that on a high level is how you how, how you figure out the ARV of a property. You got to do exactly what an appraiser would do. You start with the comps, you adjust the value of these properties for things that uh, are different from your own property, and you arrive at your own ARV. You want to take the awesome, one? great answer. No, you you hit that. Uh, you hit the nail in was is nail in the coffin. Is that the term? You hit the nail yeah. in the head. <laughs> Whatever. It's not nail in the coffin. That sounds aggressive. <laughs> okay, second question. I'm going to stop trying to, uh, you know, trying to correct myself. For Burr Properties, is there a limit of money that I should invest for renovations? Um, short and sweet, not really, right? Uh, we typically look at their return that comes out of the Burr property. So after your refi, how much money are you leaving in? What's your cash and cash return? Um, what's, your, what's your mortgage pay down return? Uh, what's the return on appreciation? Um, but it, again, situational based. A lot of these questions are going to be situational based. 
if you don't feel comfortable taking from lines of credit and you only have X amount of dollars to allocate in renovations, that's totally fine. That's going to the tough part is it's definitely going to limit the criteria of properties you're able to target. You're probably not going to get the best burr if you limit your renovations very low. Um, and that's because problems are profits, right? Like like Matt McKeever always says, when there's more problems in a property, typically that would mean that there's more upside as well because there's less investors interested in it. Um, so short and sweet, there is no limit of, of money that you should invest in renovations as long as their returns justify it. But there is a limit of money if you have personal circumstances stopping it, right? Like if you're not comfortable with private money, if you want to only fund this property, down payment, renos and cash, but you have a limited amount of capital, then you kind of had other sort of barriers that you set upon yourself, which is totally fine. Um, that That's a short answer, but Mike, you have anything to add or? No, just in case they're asking more so about type of renovations you do, right? And like how much do I spend on a house? Like you can spend $100,000 on a house and you can spend $30,000 on a house, right? Um, that's going back more so, and I don't know what angle the question was based on, but that's going more so towards, you got to do strategic renovations, which is going to come out of studying your comps, right? So when you're determining that ARV, you're getting a good idea of what do I need to do to make my properties similar to those properties, right? And what kind of strategic renovations can I do to get myself there? Because like we said earlier, fairness and stuff like that, I don't usually like to deal with a roof that's like four or five years old. I would not touch it all. No way. Right. Unless like <laughs> the shingles are like legitimately like blowing off. Like you can In four to five years. Yeah. You got a shitty yeah. roofer to do that job. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so like, yeah. So, so unless like the roof is like evidently and visibly like deteriorating, I don't touch the roof. And as a whole, actually, I don't touch exterior unless I have to. Right. Like it's just when you're dealing with I, burr properties in specific, right? Yeah, yeah, like flips is a different, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. For burr, like I generally don't. Um, usually I spend my money on flooring, paint, um, bathroom, Kitchen. Um, and bathroom renovation is not rip out everything and do a full gut reno, which I would 100% do in a flip. Bathroom renovation for a burr is generally, I keep the bathtub as much as possible. I'll even keep the toilet if possible, like depending on the condition of the toilet. I'll usually replace the countertop, like that cabinet thing under the sink, right? Because that's like 500 bucks at Home Depot. Right. So why not? And then I'll usually just slap some vinyl plank flooring in there and then I'll just paint the rest of the washroom. That's like two or three grand. Like it's not meant to yeah, be on the high. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And if you got tiles in the, in the shower, that's a little bit different, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But and again, it depends on your location as well. That's the Windsor special. Um, yeah, probably yeah. not going to fly in, in a Toronto, Oshawa, Pickering, things of that nature. But yeah, you're spot on in kitchen, right? It's the same thing as a flip. If you think about it, when people come in, the wow factors in the kitchen and bathroom, same thing with an appraisal, um, but spot on. Other things that you can do is light fixture, right? Like if you have ugly lights, like maybe 20, 30, 40 bucks to change a light fixture. Boom. Yep. There you go. Um, yeah, that, that that's really about it. Just the small cosmetic stuff that don't cost a ton yep. of money. Yep. Kitchen handles, door handles, sometimes doors, like whatever, right? Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, the next question was type of properties that you would recommend to bur- to do burr for new investors. Let's assume uh, first my- property. Yes. So my answer might not be the normal that everyone else says because everyone wants multifamily, but I actually just tell people, why don't you just do a single family burr, right? It's not going to cash flow that crazy. It's not, And this depends obviously on what area you're investing in because you can't really even break even with a single family burr in like Toronto, right? But if you're doing the cash flowing markets, why not just do a single family house? And my rationale is a single family house comes to you vacant, right? So you've now removed the tenant variable, right? So you, you, you've simplified life a lot, right? It's not going to make generational wealth difference. It's not going to make generational cash flow difference, right? 
but it gets you the experience of I'm going to buy this property under market value. I'm going to renovate it and I'm going to refinance it. I'm going to get a proof of concept going in my head, get me more confidence on the renovations. And now when I level up and I go to a duplex, like now I can add the variableness of a tenant, right? Because now if you make a mistake on your renovation budget for a duplex, triplex, whatever, that's now magnified across three units, right? And usually the mistake that I see a lot of new investors make is actually that they overspend or they over, um, they, they overestimate what a renovation will cost, which then means you're spending countless hours making offers on all these properties, but because your renovation cost is so high in your own like head, because you, you don't really know how much it'll cost, you end up out negotiating yourself. Like you're not in a competitive nature when you're making that offer, right? Like it's just not a reasonable offer and it doesn't make any sense where I could come in and I could go, no, these renovations are like 15 grand a unit, maybe 20, right? And so like, I'm willing to pay more for that property. It doesn't mean I'm overpaying. It's just that I know what the value of the renovations are, right? So I personally just tell people, if you're struggling to get started, just get started on a super easy single family house. Buy detached single family house if possible. Eventually down the road, there's going to be um, ADUs or garden suites that are possible to add into a backyard, right? So you're going you're gonna to be able to increase that cash flow significantly. Just keep it super easy and simple. Next question. I'm getting my very first mortgage from an A lender. So that's like your RBC, Scotia, SBMO, so on and so forth. They told me that I probably won't be able to do a refinance later unless I get an increase in income. How do investors do in a case like this? First of all, let me get started off by saying a lot of the mortgage specialists in these big five banks know almost nothing about investment properties. And so they don't understand that the rental income that you're likely going to generate, not in all cases, right? The target rental income is going to be double that of your mortgage. And that's called a zero impact mortgage coin. Well, that's not what it's called, but that was coined by Jacob Perez, who was also on our podcast. Basically, let's say if my mortgage payment on an investment property is $500 and my rental income is $1,000, technically that has no impact on my borrowing capacity, right? And we want to calculate that ratio after refinance, after the ARV reappraised value. So that's one thing to keep in mind is, is that the mortgage specialists uh, in these banks don't know exactly what we as investors are doing. They don't, they're not necessarily savvy investors. So they may say things that are not true. And I've been told that things that are not true by these individuals as well. Right. Um, so as long as you're keeping to that zero impact rule, you should be a okay. Right. Um, and you should actually be able to qualify for another property on top of that. However, if the zero impact rule is not going to work out in your particular case because the rental income is not doubled out of the mortgage payment and actually the, it may, let's say it's cash flow neutral, right? If, if that's the situation, then yes, the, the bank is probably right. You do probably need an increase in income. So the other options you have there is to work with the alternative lender, maybe a B lender. Uh, interest rates are going to be slightly higher. You will have to pay penalties to the A lender bank to move it over to the B lender. So there's those costs that you have to consider as well. Or you can simply just get a co-signer to help you as well, right? And as you continue to increase your income in your job, you can hopefully buy other properties with yourself without the help of the co-signer as well. Uh, but Mayu, I'm going to refer this over to you to give some other thoughts as well. I just thought that this yeah. was a pretty straightforward situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think you're spot on that. I think, um, a lot of like, even like mortgage agents that don't do a lot of investment properties, mortgage, people that do like properties in like Toronto and stuff like that, like they're just not used to the strategies that a lot of us are doing outside of the city. And it's a new concept to a lot of people. Right. Um, especially if you go in bank and you're talking to like the mortgage agents there, like they just don't know what, what they don't know at that point and how to position a file with different lenders. Right. Um, so just work with a good power team member that knows this stuff that does it. 
And then what you said is essentially true, right? Like there's a zero impact mortgages, which all of us are basically trying to get. And that's how we, we really grow our portfolio. And that's what allows us to scale. Um, worst case, you're looking at a B lender, but I just don't see how if you qualified on the buy um, and then now we're able to say the rental income is a little bit higher because you've done some strategic renovations. Therefore, we can now go back and refinance using a little bit higher of an income. I don't see how it could be too much of an issue, but obviously everyone's individual situation is a little bit different. Your worst case is you're looking at a B lender that allows for a higher TDS and GDS ratio, but don't get caught up on those fees. Don't get caught up on the slightly higher interest rate that you're going to pay on a B lender. Like instead of like a 1.5, you're like a 2.7. Don't get caught up on that. Pull out your capital, right? And redeploy that somewhere else where you can make more than a 1% rate of return and you're automatically winning, right? So how do investors do it on a case like this? Buy right, buy the right properties, right? Um, scale smart and scale efficiently. And just like, I just, we, we all get to a certain point. I think me and Austin are like this where rate doesn't matter, right? As long as I can redeploy it, at a higher rate, right? So if I have to go to B lender to get financing, I will 100% do it as long as my ROI is greater than 2.8% or 3% or whatever they charge me, right? Um, same reason we go to private lenders, right? Because like I'm happy to pay someone 12% if I can make 25%, right? Just doesn't make sense to me. So the reason why you said just to specify um, that the, what do you say, 2.8% ROI has to be higher is because the cost of debt, the interest rate is 2.8% for those yeah. who didn't get Yeah, that. for the B lender. All right, guys. So this is the last question. Is there any change in strategy in acquiring properties for you guys based on the new laws liberal government is planning to impose? Right. So let me start with saying myself and Austin, I think I posted one story related to politics, right. In the last like little while, um, for the most part, we both just like tune out a lot of the noise, right. It's just like, we're just going to have like a narrow fo focus. We're going to be knowledgeable on what's going on around the world around us. Right. But we're still buying properties that make sense for our buying criteria without too much of a concern of what's going on in the world around us with, from a politics perspective, right? There's whole, a whole bunch of different things. The one thing I will say on this topic is we had a liberal government before, minority government before, we got a liberal government again, minority government again. I don't expect a whole slew of like new rules and regulations like passing here, right? If they were a majority government, I'd be a little bit more concerned. Um, I'm not changing my strategy at all um, in relation to the new rules. And here's the other thing, like if they're going to tax us, like obviously I'm not going to be a bigger fan of like higher taxes or anything like that related to flipping. But if they're going to tax us, that doesn't mean I'm not I'm going to stop making money as a result of them taxing. Right. If I make 100 grand and right now I pay like 20 grand in taxes, if they're going to say you make 100 grand, you pay 50 grand in taxes, I'm not going to stop making 100 grand. That doesn't make sense either. Right. So keep a narrow focus, be, be knowledgeable on what's going on in the world around you. Right. But keep moving towards your directions and your goals and, you know, tune out all the noise. Right. Because I think there's people that are waiting to see what happens with the liberal rules and whatever. And they might wait six months. They might wait eight months and then realize nothing's happening. And there's people that will just say, you know what, I'm just going to buy it today based on today's numbers and, and based on what I think is a good deal today. And then whatever happens in the world is going to happen and they might end up winning more down the road as well. Right. So with that being said, I think that's our long winded answer towards uh, the politics question. We just don't really like to go a whole lot into politics. Um, but that also wraps up our Q and a guys. And I, and hopefully everyone found uh, this session useful. We really enjoyed it. I like giving back to you guys a lot. Make sure if you guys enjoyed the episode, just comment on it on, on Apple iTunes so Austin can finally stop bugging us about it. Um, share it with your network. If you guys have any interesting ideas on um, what you'd like to see in the podcast, shoot us a message. Guests are always welcome, but more so like if you guys want us to cover specific topics, we can then go and find guests that can talk about those individual topics, right? So just shoot us a message with anything you guys have in mind as well.
Yeah, and to add on to that, thank you for all of the support you showed uh, for our one year. Um, and we're looking forward to have you guys in our second, third, fourth, and fifth year as we continue to grow this podcast. Take care all, and until next time, invest smarter and live better.